Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast of politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by people who have worked in politics, public policy. I'm not really sure if you can like you like work in current affairs or like current affairs or just a constant state of being. Anyway, I decided to mess with our intro today. I'm Chris Martin. And I'm Garima Talwarkapur. I'm Alvin Tedja. Today on the pod, faster vaccines and new data from Statistics Canada on what has driven Ontario's COVID-19 spread. A new report from the Financial Accountability Office on Ontario's housing programs and homelessness. And also, we're going to dive into some of the revelations from Ontario's Commission on Long-Term Care that Minister Marilee Fullerton may have been pushing for more COVID measures earlier in the pandemic than was previously known or thought of. Stick around because later in the pod, City University of New York professor and economist Miles Korak will join to talk about how we could look at reforming EI with Grima. Really excited for that discussion. But first, Alvin, you have a new best friend, MPP Randy Hillier. I saw you got into it with him on Twitter. Yeah, that was fun. He's been tweeting crazy shit. People die. Uninformed, ignorant zombies adhere to inane and rational policies around masking. COVID lockdowns are bullshit. And only zombies wear them. And basically, I threw it back in his face. And and then he decided he wanted to engage and and chastise me for putting he, him in my my profile. I like to think that we're going to come out on the right side of this for a number of reasons. One being that Twitter has started to censor some of his posts recently. He's an incompetent, fear-mongering, terrible human being that is going to get people killed, including his own constituents. And so somebody rightly said, maybe you shouldn't be highlighting this stuff. And I said, the problem is he's a he's an elected leader and people do follow him and he's got quite a bit of a social media following and people need to know that the stuff he says is dangerous. Yeah, I actually thought I, in, in addition to just wanting to talk about Twitter drama, I also uh, it did remind me, like the week after we talked about the like the influence and the reach of the far right, recognizing that it is a part of Canadian politics and a part of Ontario politics at a fairly non-main, maybe not totally mainstream, but not super far from the mainstream. It reminded me of that uh, a lot, and it was a, a close to home example. So maybe moving us into our first topic today, the Financial Accountability Office released a fascinating report last week that reviewed the province's housing and homelessness programs. The report analyzed the impact of the province's housing programs on the supply of subsidized housing and need, and basically whether we are on track to meet our commitment to end chronic homelessness by 2025. So Grima, what did the FEO find? Thanks, Chris. Yeah, there's a lot in this paper. And as always, I encourage people to read what the FAO is writing about. But in their overview of housing and homelessness programs in Ontario, they identify recent program and spending changes and and then project the impact of these programs on housing need and homelessness in the the future. I'll break up the summary into three parts the number of people or households that are supported, then go into funding and then focus on homelessness because there's just a lot here. So let's start with the number of people supported. The province's housing programs provide subsidized housing to low and moderate income households in the province. And they generally fall into two main categories, social housing and affordable housing. Social housing units are referred to as rent geared to income units or RGI, where tenants pay 30% of their gross household income for rent. On the other hand, affordable housing programs provide construction grants to developers who in return can create affordable or below market rent housing 
in the buildings that they built. Affordable housing programs also provide rent supplements and offer home ownership assistance for some households. So if I can ask, one of these ways is significantly more effective than the other, if I'm understanding correctly, right? Yeah, I'd say, well, I guess it depends on what the program goal is, yeah. right? And so if you want to address people who live in deep poverty and core housing need, then subsidized housing through RGI is the best way to address that core housing need. But that type of housing is really expensive to build and sustain. And we've seen, I won't get into the history of RGI in the province and in Canada, but we've seen a huge retrenchment from government in investing in RGI in decades past. And so affordable housing programs help people try to stay above that core housing need threshold, but it doesn't provide that substantive support that people are often looking for. But yeah, and so in 2018 and 19, approximately 297,000 households received support through Ontario's housing programs. Since 2011, the number of Ontario households in core housing need has increased while the number of households receiving support has decreased. And essentially, this means that between 2011 and 2018, there was an increase of 118,000 households in core housing need. And over the same period of time, the number of households receiving housing support declined by 12,000 households. So obviously, the increase in the number of households who have core housing need combined with a decline drove an increase in unmet demand for social housing. So what does this sort of practically mean for people? In short, it means that the province's social housing waitlist increased by 27% over that time period. So that is more people. So even though I like you hear this province, this government talk a lot about how it is trying to increase the supply of housing to meet the affordable housing crisis. What I think this report is showing us is that the affordability of housing is somewhat unmatched potentially from that supply and that the demand for affordable housing is on the rise despite what we are, despite the the rhetoric and the commitments that we've seen. Yeah, and the figures between 2011 and 2018 predate this government and really focus on the former liberal government if we're looking at what happened between 2011 and 2018. But yeah, the idea that increasing the supply of housing alone is going to help address the affordability crisis that we have is simply not true. And that's especially true at the deepest end of need where people need access to to deeply affordable housing. And so whether that's homelessness programs or that's through RGI, through subsidized housing, or that's affordable housing programs to help provide people with rent supplements, for example, the need has outpaced what government has been able to provide between 2011 and 2018 And the FAO projects that trend is going to continue. So what has funding looked like for these programs? And is it at the heart of why this is a growing issue as opposed to one that we're actually addressing? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's a bit shocking when you realize how much we're not spending on housing programs in the province. So 
Between 2013-2014 and 2018-19, the province spent about $5 billion on housing programs, of which 67% or two-thirds was covered by the federal government, and the remaining one-third was covered by the province. Hold on. Can I... I is that $5 billion over five years? Yep. Like a billion dollars per year? It's a cumulative total. Yep. So like... When I was in education, we had a budget per year of close to $28 billion per year. And not saying, of course, that is we support the whole cost of the education system. But just to give you, that is, I am shocked. I was shocked when I read this report and saw how small that investment that was. Yeah, and it's undeniable how important housing is to our health and well-being. And if we, yeah, compare housing spending to education or healthcare, where healthcare just takes over a lot of spending in the public sector. But it's crazy how much we're actually not spending. And that's why you see the type of need and demand for affordable and social housing that we're seeing right now. So in any case, over time, between 2018-19 and 2027-28, some of the funding agreements between the federal government and provincial government are going to expire. And so in 2018, the federal government announced its national housing strategy, which initially put $40 billion into housing programs across Canada. And now that figure is roughly over $70 billion. But under the NHS, the Ontario government and the federal government have committed to spend $4 billion over the, let's say, roughly eight years. And that will consist of $2.9 billion of federal support and $1.1 billion of provincial spending, which... Again, at that time, when the NHS was released, was a really big deal in terms of just sustained federal government investment in housing programs across the country. But again, when we think about the scale relative to other public services, we know that much more is needed. And I just, I'd quickly say that between 2019-20 and 2027 and 28, the annual spending from the province on housing programs will average around $700 million a year. This is significantly less than what was than what happened in the years prior to 2018 at about $856 million. And so by my own estimate, that $150 million annual shortfall will translate to a $1.2 billion shortfall over the course of the next eight years. The FAO estimates that the total number of households in core housing need will increase to 815,000 households in 2027, which is an increase of 80,000 households from 2018. And so again, to your question earlier, Chris, despite this focus on increasing supply and the government's focus on building new housing, the FAO is basically saying that's not going to be enough to reach those in greatest need. I think what's interesting here, Grima, is that obviously this is trying to address one of the factors that are facing people right now. But we've seen a bunch of memes. I've seen a bunch of videos from this hour's 22 minutes. Like we're talking about affordable housing. We haven't, this doesn't scratch the surface on housing affordability, right? The GTA is just insane right now where people are putting in a million and a half dollars for a piece of property in Toronto. There's just absolutely no housing affordability in large cities across Canada right now, but especially here in Ontario. 
And I don't know what anyone's going to do about that and, you know, how they're going to start addressing these things. But this is, I think, going to be a significant problem and something that's going to have to be addressed by governments and political parties in the months ahead. Yeah. And if we don't, we're going to see it in homelessness and in the most acute way of seeing the crisis materialize is in the number of people that are homeless. Yeah. So actually, I just I wanted to ask you about homelessness because I know the FAO touched on that too. I must admit, I had forgotten that we had a commitment to end homelessness by 2025 and not looking good. Yeah, it's not looking good. The FAO basically says that while the government still has a commitment to reduce chronic homelessness by 50% by 2025, the province is not going to get there. And 16,000 people are homeless on any given night in Ontario. And it's essentially because we're not spending as much as we need to in the programs that will help reduce homelessness. And I think people should take the time to read it because Alvin, it really touches on one segment of the housing market, let's say, and housing need, but doesn't get into the other end which is about housing affordability and that both issues, whether it's affordable housing or housing affordability, are huge political issues. And I don't know how governments get around the housing affordability question, but at least on the trying to subsidize housing for people in greatest need, there are programs that they can invest in if they so choose to. They've just decided not to. Yeah. And if I had to read the Ford government's thinking about this. It is, I think, very much not about spending more in rent geared to income or trying to match incomes with affordable housing. They seem to have a philosophy of if we can free up developers to build and have them commit through municipal planning processes to affordable housing that will chip away at this issue. So they're really like leaning on that supply side. The problem with that is what I think you said last week is that my first sort of question to on this segment was, we know that, and Sir Alvin, you touched on this as well, that affordable housing does not necessarily actually mean affordable housing. If a developer puts a section of rent subsidized units in, that still may be way above what the folks in the most acute need are making. So yeah, really frustrating thing. And like just one of these issues that we have not at all prioritized as a province. And that's not just the Ford government, that's the liberal government. Lots of big talk on this, not if we actually want to tackle it, it seems like we need to resource it a lot more. And this is a good wake up call for that. Moving. Speaking of wake up calls, Alvin, let's talk about the one that uh, potentially the minister responsible for long term care tried giving to the uh, cabinet and then cabinet ignored vaccines. Yeah, Chris, it's crazy, because I really want to continue disliking Merrilee Fullerton in all capacities. But I think this one might actually help her come out a little shinier and maybe explain why the premier has yet to dismiss uh, this minister for continuing to allow things uh, to happen at long-term care homes. Just as a quick refresher for everyone, Ontario's long-term care homes have seen 3,744 deaths and 11 staff um, sorry, 3,744 residents and 11 staff die from COVID-19, which is roughly half of Ontario's total death toll to COVID. 
And that the commission was set up because of that to basically investigate and figure out independently what the government was doing right and wrong and what else it could have done. And this started last July. And they've been doing an investigation ever since and basically have been posting some of their interviews that we're now seeing. So some of the findings that we've come that have come to light recently is that she was the minister was ahead on this in the term in terms of asymptomatic spread and tried to warn the government on this and also talk to the top doctor. But at times she felt that she was perhaps not not just because she's the minister and she's responsible for the policy of this, but because she was also a family doctor, she didn't want to overstep and try to insert her you know personal knowledge on the matter which I can respect. But at the same time, I think it's important that you do speak out and you were put in that place for certain roles. And it also showed that Ontario's top doctor also likes to cite that he's trying to listen to the experts of which he should be one or be the foremost expert in this province, and has been grilled around not taking the precautionary principle as Ontario has started to adopt since SARS of basically doing what is the safest thing to do in light of not having more data? And and why did he not take those more precautionary roles? So a couple other quick things that I want to mention is that, especially on asymptomatic testing, Fullerton was very bullish on that and tried to get the government to take it more seriously. Ford didn't heed that advice, and that helped fuel the backlogs later on. There's a huge issue with how the ministry is still the second cousin to the larger Ministry of Health and not necessarily included and actually forgotten in some discussions as a partner, which is just terrible government inner workings, not helping people. And probably why there wasn't uh, more done on on long-term care homes, especially with vaccinations ramping up. And that, again, the government is at fault for the new procurement system for the lack of, of PPE or the slow repl- replenishment of PPE is also blamed on that. So they were trying to fix their car as they were redesigning it and driving it down the 401 at the same time. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this. But I guess I want to get into a couple of questions around what we think should have been the Honorable Marilee Fulton's role in all of this. The opposition has been lambasting her along the fact that you should have went public with this and she's trying to be cabinet confidential and the right soldier. And I guess you can get into party politics on this. But I guess my concern is how much does this actually show that the Ford government is run completely from the premier's office and not through cabinet, right? If he can't trust and take the advice of his lead minister responsible for long-term care, then whose advice is he actually listening to? Yeah, it's, it's an important, it's an important question. And I think particularly as I was thinking about this one, I want to put in really stark terms. Like this is something the government should need to answer for. And I think knows it needs to answer for Driven mostly by Ontario, Canada's rate of COVID-19 deaths occurring in long-term care is double the OECD average. This was nationally a colossal failure, and a lot of that failure is because is driven by Ontario. So this is something that, like when the NDP is saying there needs to be more looking into this, is something that I completely support because this is this was a we've done well in COVID-19 in some cases, but in this particular one, it has been a like colossal failure. And one of the things that I've checked with myself, uh, especially as this sort of came out, is like, how much was this structure of central versus minister 
directing my blame towards the minister. And I think that we've talked on the show a couple of times about how she should step down. She should be asked to resign. Ford should remove her. And I've worked in a government where it's not like in the government that we worked in, things weren't heavily centrally driven. Like the center carries power in government. And that's the way it is in provincial and federal governments across the country. And ministers do have power. Ministers offices have power. They manage. But what the premier or the prime minister says goes. And it has been amazing to me to this point how what is several orders of magnitude larger than Walkerton has not landed on Ford's desk, but we have been eager to blame a minister who is a woman and is a credentialed woman. And I, not to take all blame off of Marilee Fold, I think that she's, I recall press conferences that she's walked out of. I, I think that like there's, she it does obviously bear some level of responsibility here, but I must admit, I read this and I felt a certain sense of shame at just how much I had placed on her and not the government as a whole and not on Ford and in terms yeah. of calls for her to resign. And stuff I like certainly that. think Doug Ford blames the vast majority of the responsibility for all of this shit show continuing to happen on a daily basis. The tricky part is, Chris, is that we know ministers do have an ultimate nuclear option if they so choose. They can quit cabinet, they can go in a, in a blaze and, and bring everyone down with them and say, why on principle are they quitting? And I would argue thousands of people dying under your watch is probably a pretty good reason to use that option to say, I have said the following things. It is unacceptable that this government is not doing that. I cannot in good conscience continue to be a part of that. And I think that is what I think we would assume principled people would do given in, given that opportunity. And I just don't know that we can't, we have to blame the premier, but at the same time, she has all the information and the tools and has to make decisions for themselves in terms of who they are as a member of provincial parliament, who they are as a medical professional, who they are as a, a member of cabinet in order to do this. And if no one's willing to listen, then what else are they going to do about it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that like the instincts of this government like also exist within her. She has not, one of the things that like writ large across this government, they have not acknowledged the role that private sector ownership has played in this. They have uh, perpetuated a system that was largely created by Mike Harris. I, yeah, I they're think continuing I can... to not, not do inspections. They're not providing the capital needed to renovate places that have been grandfathered in, especially yeah. in terms of ward rooms. There's still lots they could do and haven't been doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Lobbyists for this industry are some of the highest placed staffers in the health infrastructure. I think that there is a, yeah, it was just a good reminder for me to place more systemic blame than individual blame in this because it's a systemic problem that's driven and it's not just one minister. It's not just one thing. It's something that we need to fix. And when Ford says he's going to fix it, he needs to start with those things. So she reminded us last week, right, that a lot of these for-profit long-term care homes aren't that's not their primary business. Their primary business is being a, a, a renter. They're renting these beds out to people at at exorbitant amounts, and they're barely keeping them alive in this yeah. scenario. So the government needs to do something else to step in and, and make sure this doesn't happen again.
Uh, we'll want to end on a high note today. We did get some more uh, details from the federal government and the province on vaccine rollout. I know I was in a celebratory mood uh, over the weekend because of that. So maybe we'll just talk about them a little bit here. So it began with Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau announcing the potential for a more rapid timeline for vaccines than we previously thought. This as the result of the AstraZeneca and Johnson vaccine approvals, an opinion uh, from Canada Public Health that it is worth delaying the second round by up to four months to get more shots and more arms faster. And Pfizer announcing 1.5 million more doses coming uh, our way earlier than was the previous plan. So Ontario immediately announced afterwards that it was would be moving up its timeline. So it actually was a little bit more committed to the timeline than the federal government, estimating that everyone over the age of 60 and their caregivers would have a chance for a shot by early June. Just quick couple highlights from the plan. The rapid timeline also included people in COVID-19 hotspots. So this isn't like a whole public, it's not like Toronto and Peel, but there are particular areas in Toronto and Peel. People of all ages within those are now going to be considered in phase two, which we are moving into now. So more people in areas where they're seeing super spreader events more frequently are going to get vaccines faster. Those in high-risk health conditions with comorbidities, they've released an official list of basically a whole list of things that you're going to be bumped up to the queue if you have certain health conditions. So if you have cancer, you have respiratory conditions, you have any number of things. Homelessness actually also made a list of priority, which was an excellent move, I thought, by public health. Those who live in congregate settings, those who cannot work from home. So we finally got details on jobs that they're going to be bumping up in the queue to phase two, which I will say begins at the end of March. They're going to start talking about teachers they're going to talk, and school staff, food processing workers, agriculture workers, social workers. So it's not just uh, the elderly. It's also those who are going to be on the front lines, which was incredibly important. And interestingly, those age 60 to 64 who were, I think, formally on the end. One of the reasons I think they were able to move up the timeline for older populations is because they're going to start giving younger seniors the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was previously not the advice. So lots of interesting stuff there. I think my first question is, how do we feel about podcast co-hosts being left off this list? But more importantly, it seems like we finally might be turning a page into where this is looking into something more real. I'm thinking back to January, it seemed like it was a constant blame game between the federal government and the province over supply. What do we think this recent announcement says about where, how this is evolving and how, how do we think the politics and the policy here is going to change over time? I think it's crazy. The numbers are crazy in the sense that we were talking about tens of thousands of doses a couple of months ago. We're talking about millions of doses right now. The vast majority of Ontarians are going to be vaccinated in the next couple of months with all of this. So it makes you reflect on all the ink that was spilled around rollouts and total vaccinations and yada yada is all political. All of it was political. People were trying to make hay out of something that they thought was something they could make hay about and score political points. And it's all about the next election. None of it was, maybe there were some legitimate concerns as to who would be vaccinated first. But when we were talking about tens of thousands versus now talking about millions, I think it's night and day. What the hell were we talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Like when everyone lost their minds over Pfizer's like plant shipments being reduced like marginally for two weeks. And now we're like, they're announcing 1.5 million doses more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the January, February, just constant frustration is going to be uh, forgotten quickly. So there are 
devils in details here. The deck from the vaccination task force had some interesting details from like the implementation stuff itself. So uh, 113 mass vaccination clinics are to be set up by the end of March. The province is obviously highly going to rely on these mass clinics. They're estimating 80% of the vaccine supply is going to come through those. There is going to be an online booking system and provincial call center going live on March 15th. It's currently being piloted this week. The pilot is is finishing and it's going to be rolling out. And the provincial portal, which I think is live in some places now, will allow you to basically enter your health card. It will tell you whether you are eligible. Um, to get a vaccine and where your closest site is. And they'll be offering it through mass vaccination clinics, pharmacies, and also through family doctors. So um, a variety of places to get it. Pharmacies will largely, I think, offer the AstraZeneca vaccine since it can be stored at higher temperatures. The Pfizer, Moderna, which need to be a little bit colder, I think potentially more of the mass vaccination route. But we don't totally know what's going to go where. We have classically at Ontario Lab been worried about organization and logistics with this government, particularly since they've opted for a model, even with those sort of central supports with the mass clinics and with the provincial portal, uh, where every public health unit is doing its own plan. Does this plan give us more confidence in the government's handle on this? Less? Are we are we feeling better about the logistical side of things than we may have been last time we were talking? I think 113 mass vaccination sites is a lot because it's a couple of vaccination sites per PHU, if you were going to average it out. And so... I think the question is, while the responsibility for the vaccination, the operations around it are going to be decentralized, it sounds like, by region, I'm hopeful that that authority and power to make decisions then are also decentralized. And I think that's where the tension often lies, is that the operations will be decentralized, but actual policy decisions are still made centrally or at a provincial level. And so... I think that that remains to be seen and who knows what's going to happen there. But I also think, and not to be a broken record on this, but there are other public health measures that need to be taken into account that need to be implemented at the same time as vaccination. And so I'm worried that our focus on vaccination is going to cause us to forget about all of the other good public health principles that we need to implement from a policy perspective, protected paid sick leave, to ensure that people are safe, even if they're they're not vaccinated. And so there's, yeah, I think there's good news, but I am cautiously optimistic. And I think that caution is super warranted. There was a letter that went to the school boards last week that said basically they should not count on any of their COVID supports for the upcoming Mm -hmm. academic year. They haven't announced anything, but basically it was like a a warning to be like, don't anticipate the same level of support you got from us this year, which I think shows that the government is potentially eager in some places to pull back the level of support once the vaccine campaign rolls out. In some cases, that might actually be warranted, but in other cases, like pays it, like there's it's something to pay attention to. One little thing too that I, I noticed as I was thinking about this was a lot of the messaging is about being conditional on supply. So clearly, the political move that the province and municipalities are trying to strike is to basically saying we can get this out as fast as you will supply us with the vaccine. So Toronto has said basically we can do up to, I think it was like 350 to 500,000 vaccines a day and they're going to do 24-7. It's like they have an impressive rollout. 
supply is not only determined by the federal government. I think it's a they're trying to say as long as the feds can give us this, we can get it out into arms, which is great. And I think will make sense to people. One little example of how where that can get mismatched was in Toronto, where the supply came in to the province but was distributed to the public health units by population, out of step with the fact that Toronto's population share is not the same as its elderly population share, which is the population we're trying to vaccinate right now, which resulted in a two-week delay in, or in a, not a two weeks, in a, I don't know if it's two weeks exactly, which resulted in a delay in Toronto being able to begin mounting its vaccination program for elderly, which has kicked Toronto's whole timeline down the thing. So that is exactly the kind of provincial decision, Grima, that like needs to be made collaboratively with public health units, as opposed to the province decreeing it from down on high. Not because I think without the province is trying to do anything political, but that's where errors can happen and those errors result in delays. And what I worry is that with them saying, as long as supply happens, that kicks all the blame up to the feds when actually I think it should be much more equally shared between federal and provincial governments. Cool, cool. So first thing, uh, rapid fire. One year ago, a bunch of liberals got together in a big campaign hall days before the world shut down and elected Stephen Del Duca, their leader, a past, regrettably so, on uh, certain podcast hosts here. Any reflections on uh, a year of Del Duca in Ontario politics? I think Stephen's done a lot of good things. And I don't say that just as a liberal. I think free membership is good, opening up up the part the parties and platform stuff which a couple of us are involved in i think is great and they just got out of debt that's fantastic there seems to be a lot of talk around basic income and a lot of talk around childcare. i'd like to think i was a pioneer in a number of these things especially on party internal party reforms so i will take that as a win and it's been difficult i think for any party leader to try and get any attention when government leaders get press conferences every day so we'll see how well Stephen and the leaders can peg a number of these issues They've been facing us during COVID on the existing premier. Yeah, I think, Alvin, we still have to have a great debate on basic income on the pod, because as you all know, I'm a skeptic and have lots of questions. But I do think that not partisan, but I think that the liberal uh, parties focus on economic dignity is really interesting. I'm also super happy that the event wasn't a super spreader event and that people did not get I don't think people got COVID from it. And that makes that's a good thing. So I have a personal story there in that I got a very bad cold the week after I was there. And I was dead, deathly like scared that I would I got COVID. It didn't end up being bad. And I of course testing wasn't available, so I will never know. I shook a lot of hands, I gave a lot of people hugs. I and it was like, yeah, I was gathered in a campaign hall with like thousands of people uh, over like, 2000 people in that hall and i oh guarantee i shook at least five six hundred hands <laughs> yeah we avoided by sheer luck a disaster there well done it's been an interesting time for uh, steven so far and uh, we'll see how it goes towards the election want to talk about this because this actually shocked me as last rapid fire new zealand has had one covid death in the last five months one five months like, Jacinda Ardern, that's my rapid fire response. Yeah, like island, like island nation, but we all gotta like just. So is the know. UK. The UK is an island nation too, and they left the EU. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no, I nothing but respect for New Zealand on this. And actually, what's even more impressive is if you go back to, I think, like their total amount in the pandemic is 28. Just an unbelievable handling of the pandemic. Their reminder that we should set our standards high with our leaders and our policies. So great. I think that's it for the news segment today. Uh, stick around and we'll be back for our interview with Miles. Hey, so before we end of the interview, I just wanted to talk about some of the ways that you can support the pod as a listener. So the first way is to go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and sign up for one of the tiers of support. This is a low monthly amount from $3 to $5 to more if you'd like that helps us do things like pay for our technology costs, our hosting costs, bring on more people to help with graphic design, with communications, with research, uh, and ultimately allows us to do more and dream bigger as a pod. Thank you to those uh, of you who already do support. You've helped make this possible to date. And if you like what you're hearing and you haven't yet, uh, head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud today. You can also head to the iTunes store and leave us a star review and even better, write something in the comments about how you like the pod. This helps us greatly with the iTunes algorithm, which helps the pod generally. Understand times are tough. Uh, if you don't have cash, head to the iTunes store and leave us a review. All right, that's enough housekeeping. On to the interview. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed our news banter at the beginning of the episode. For our deep dive today, we're digging into a very important and timely discussion. For decades, people have been talking about the need to reform employment insurance in Canada. While the nature of work has changed, EI failed to keep up. We've known this for a long time, but the COVID-19 pandemic made the shortcomings of EI palpable. In fact, one of the reasons that the CERB had to be created in response to the pandemic was because of the shortcomings of EI. Many people that would have needed support wouldn't qualify under EI rules, let alone the administrative challenges of the program. For example, about 1.1 million Canadians were unemployed at some point in 2018, and 64% of them had contributed to the EI program. However, only 42% of all unemployed people were eligible for coverage. This means that millions would have been left without support if the CERB did not kick in. While emergency benefits in response to the pandemic, like CERB, the Canada Recovery Benefit, the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit, have helped immensely during this time, they are time limited. We have to start thinking about how we transform many different aspects of our, of our social safety net for our post-pandemic future. Joining us for a much-needed discussion on EI and potential opportunities to reform the program so that it reflects the needs of workers in the economy today. I am so pleased to have Miles Korak join us for the discussion. Miles is Professor of Economics with the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and Senior Scholar at the James M. and Kathleen D. Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. In 2017, Miles was an Economist in Residence at Employment and Social Development Canada. There's a lot to discuss here, and so let's get right to it. Miles, welcome to the pod. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm looking forward to engaging with you and your listeners on, as you said, a very important topic right now. We're at a crossroads, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, we certainly are at a crossroads. And I think EI is one of those programs that people think that they know about, but I think it's helpful to start off 
this conversation with what is EI and what role does EI play in our social safety net? Well, on paper and in name, employment insurance is meant to be insurance for the loss of jobs. And we have to have that insurance collectively. And we, and we learned that almost a century ago. It, it took Canada many decades and years before it was the last major industrialized country to introduce a program of unemployment insurance. It only did that during World War II after the Great Depression. EI is supposed to give you income support when you need it because you've lost a job. But the way in Canada, the system has evolved to serve other functions. And in particular, there was a major reform of the program in the 1970s. And since that time, it's evolved also into a program of regional income support. All provinces east of uh, Ontario, east of the Ottawa River, are net recipients from the from the program. All provinces west of the uh, uh, Ottawa River are net contributors. And this buoys up incomes in the Atlantic provinces in Quebec. So there's this other goal that's been layered on the program over years. But at its, at its core, it's supposed to be insurance for the loss of employment. And that is really important just as insurance for the loss of a home in case of a fire is important. It helps individuals confront the uncertainties that the future holds. It contributes to their security. And this is very much part of the agenda of this federal government. And I'm surprised, in fact, that it's taken this long to reconsider this important insurance program. Thanks, Miles. That was really helpful. You touched on earlier about some of the changes that have taken place in the program. And I guess it would be helpful if we could dig into that a little bit more and in just assessing some of the changes that may have taken place or did take place in the program and how those changes may have either supported or undermined workers as the nature of the labor market changed. That, that's great. Why don't, if, if it's okay with you, why don't we take our touchstone as the major reform that occurred in the early 1970s? Yeah, uh, let's start there. Okay. We were coming off, Canadian society was coming off a period of, of very high growth in the, uh, the 60s. And there were major reforms to the fabric of our welfare state. It was in the 60s that universal health care was introduced across the country. It was in the 60s that there were important changes to the support of the elderly population in terms of the structure of pension programs that helped to eliminate poverty amongst the poor. And there was also a support for families with children through the universal family allowance. All these were meant to support security and income growth. And for the working age population, we introduced a major reform of the unemployment insurance program, significantly expanded the scope of the program to make it more of an insurance scheme. It had relatively equal eligibility rules across the country. In part, these eligibility rules were based upon the province of residence. There were only about 14 or 16 different regions and it was the unemployment rate in those regions that determined how many weeks of work you needed to get access to benefits. It sort of makes sense. If there's a region-specific shock in Saskatchewan or Alberta mm -hmm. and the unemployment rate shoots up, then we want a more generous program. We mm -hmm. want 
the program to be able to catch people and provide benefits when they need it. Mm-hmm. If an economy is booming in Ontario, maybe we don't need is, is, is such a generous program. So the program had this built-in barometer in which it, its generosity rose and fell with the overall state of the economy. And that's what it's supposed to be about, this sort of collective risk. The program was also relatively generous in the sense that if you did become unemployed and you had enough insurable hours, you got two-thirds of your income supported by the program, up to a maximum insurable earnings. And the duration of benefits, they lasted almost a year in extreme cases if you live somewhere with a high unemployment rate. But what happened over the course of the 70s and 80s were two things. One, the focus of government policy became containing deficits. And so the program faced repeated cuts through major reforms. The last of these was in the mid-90s that reduced the the rate of benefits, reduce the duration of benefits, and reduce the generosity of, of, of benefits. The other thing that happened is a type of local politics took place, and politicians at the local level were anxious to show that they could offer their constituencies something. And so slowly, the program was sliced and diced into smaller and smaller regions. Now we've got almost 60 regions And these were all, in the end, meant to offer income support, as I said, to some areas. The other thing that happened is that the government layered on so-called Part 2 benefits, which were meant to support training and other programs run by the provinces. And so we've now spent about a, a billion dollars of EI funds on training, on job counseling, and other supports run by the province. And that was another excuse to cut back on the generosity of the program and put more of the onus and more of the responsibility on individuals to, quote-unquote, adjust to changes in the labor market. The whole policy discussion around the program was framed in terms of work disincentives and moral hazards and Mm -hmm. getting people back to work. And the insurance function, as a result, was cut back significantly. That's my thumbnail sketch. I hope that helps. That picture that you painted is really helpful. And the history of where we were in the 70s relative to where we are today is is fascinating, right? Like the replacement rate several decades ago was two thirds of up to the maximum insurable earnings, whereas now it's at 55%. And so just to go back to your point around a, a focus on on cost containment, a focus on work incentives has now created a program that I think doesn't actually do the job of supporting workers when they need it most. That's well put. Another barometer of that is in the 70s and 80s, somewhere between, depending upon the region, somewhere between 80 and 100% of the unemployed qualified for the program. And now it's only 40%. So that's another barometer of the access that people have to this program. Wow. And that segues well into my next question, which is, you've noted that in your writing and research that Canada has experienced significant economic shocks in the past, which have illuminated that EI needs to be changed. And at the same time, though, I wonder if the debate around the future of work 
and what it could look like or may look like has taken off the pressure from the federal government to actually undertake meaningful reforms because you're constantly waiting to see what is the future of work going to look like so that you modernize the program in response. But as you say, Miles, the future of work is now. So what do you think will be different about our current shock, the pandemic? And do you think it will compel the federal government to truly enact some reforms? Well, the federal government has said in the throne speech that it wants to reform EI for the 21st century. So certainly the public policy community is expecting some reforms. I think the way the government is now framing that discussion is it's wondering what it can do in the near term immediately, given the administrative capacity of the public service to make changes and what it should be doing in the longer uh, run, maybe over the span of the next year, bigger changes that might require broader consultation, engagement of of stakeholders. So it's basically the thinking is, what can we put into the next budget now? And what should we have on our shelf to engage uh, discussion? As important as it is is to look to the future, I think the government in some sense has signaled that for reforms, it's looking for motivation from the past. And the past involved putting a lot more money into training And I think that's gone too far inside of the confines of an EI system. But as you say, the future of work is here. In in a sense, the pandemic has brought forward all kinds of changes that were continually moving our economy in a different direction. You and I are having this conversation. Neither of us are in our offices anymore. We're talking across space to viewers located everywhere. And we're doing it as product productively as we could have Mm. if we were conducting this conversation a a year or more ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, So firms are increasingly going to figure out how this technology of communication can be used productively. Some of Mm -hmm. them will do it, some of them won't. Obviously, the degree to which working at home is going to be productive, is going to rely on all sorts of other social supports, like a well-functioning education system, like a well-functioning childcare system. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, part of productivity will be a social decision. But it seems to me that if firms figure out that you can do your work anywhere, they're going to start wondering, can anyone do your work? Mm -hmm. I'm just borrowing from the title of a column in the Financial Times and phrasing it that way. And one wonders, to borrow also some work from an economist named Richard Baldwin, whether this new technology, as it's so forcefully come into our lives now, is going to lead to the type of contracting out of work in a globalized economy that many people in Ontario working in the manufacturing sector faced Mm -hmm. during the first wave of globalization in the 80s and and 90s. So there's a chance that a lot of people are going in the service sector are going to face a very different uh, work world. And on that way in adjusting, it's possible there's going to be a lot more shocks and disruption. And that's going to ask them, or they're going to need much more better income insurance. And the trouble with EI is it's all based upon this World War I, World War II notion 
that income security comes from having a job and usually the main breadwinner in the household, usually the male having that job. If he lost his job, the whole family suffered. What we need now is as much income support as we need job support or job insurance. Mm -hmm. And so what the government should consider, in my view, is as a priority, better insurance in the EI system. It can do that by tweaking parameters, by, as you said, raising the replacement rate above 50%, raising the maximum insurable earnings so more people in the higher end of the income distribution are, are covered, and changing the eligibility rules so that they're more uniform across the country, so that people in Toronto and southwestern Ontario have as much access to the program as people in other parts of the country. And those are short-term reforms I think it can make very quickly. Mm-hmm. But in the longer run, if it really want to, wants to address this whole notion of the future of work, then it should be thinking about income insurance and trying to make the EI system complement the developments we have around basic income and, and, and income support. And I, I and others have written about some concrete proposals it could pursue in that direction. Was in the first wave of globalization, it was a lot of the manufacturing jobs or more blue-collar jobs that suffered sort of the outflow of jobs from Canadian jurisdictions to the global labor market. In a hyper-digitized world, we can see that creep into other segments of the labor market and across the income distribution. At your appearance before the House of Commons Standing Committee on Human Resources, Skills and Social Development and the Status of Persons with Disabilities, just a few weeks ago, you had spoken, in addition to the reforms on increasing the replacement rate and increasing other of those short-term fixes, you had also spoken about wage insurance. And I was wondering if you could highlight for people that are listening what a mechanism like a wage insurance program could look like. I'd be happy to. I'd note, actually, that in the election platform of the Liberal Party in the last election, they had promised something called career insurance, a career insurance benefit. Right. And that actually was put in the mandate letter of the Minister of of Employment and Social Development Canada, uh, Minister Qualtrough, actually. So that idea is on the table. It harkens back to proposals in the 1990s to support workers in industries that were heavily impacted by globalization and trade. Your wages depend upon your productivity, and your productivity depends upon your skills. And a lot of our skills are developed by working inside of a firm. People who've worked for the same employer for many years have much more experience, and they have the specific skills that employer requires. But those skills are most beneficial to that particular employer, and they're not easily transferable to other employers. So people who've worked for the same employer for many years, when they get laid off, and this is well documented in American and Canadian data, when they get laid off, they suffer pretty well a permanent loss in their income. It's a very dramatic loss at first. And then after a couple of years, they're able to find a place in the labor market. They're able to do a little bit better, but they never return to the income they had before. And so it's not 
that they don't have a job. <laughs> it's that they've moved permanently to a lower paying job. The manufacturing worker who now drives a fruit, fruit delivery truck. You, you saw those people in London, Ontario. You saw them in Pickering and, and you saw them in St. Uh, uh, Catharines. And now you're going to see them again, but relative to uh, people who worked in the service sector in well-paid middle-level mm -hmm. jobs. So what they need is not job insurance, not employment or unemployment insurance. They need some insurance for the, their permanent loss of income. And so what wage insurance is basically you're telling the individual who's been laid off, go off, get a job as quickly as you can. And the insurance program will cover for some period of time, the gap between your current income and your previous income. That gap is going to be filled by a wage insurance. It's of limited duration. Mm -hmm. If the government thought hard, it could adapt the proposals it has on the table. It could actually use some of the programs that are in the part two of the EI benefits that, that mimic this program, that, but uh, that are underused. And it would be introducing a type of insurance that's much needed for the 21st century. I'm not saying it, this should replace mm -hmm. employment insurance, but it should be a component for the tens of thousands of workers who are long seniority and have permanently lost their job. After all, EI does a great job of insuring small risks and, and not a very good job of the big risks. And these right. are the big risks that really matter. It's if you and I spent all of our worry and concern about insuring our bicycles, but left our home uninsured. And, and, and so EI lost its way. And if you really want an EI program for the 21st century, then wage insurance has to be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. As part of broader EI reforms as part of broader social safety net transformations that need to take place, I think is a really fascinating and compelling and much needed conversation that needs to happen and hopefully beyond conversation and actually implemented. But as policy thinkers, we also know that there's a lot of considerations and trade-offs involved in some of the things that we're thinking. And so for government, if you were inside government, what were what would be some of the considerations that they'd be thinking of? What are other stakeholders that may be against some of these EI reforms be saying? And how should government respond? You're absolutely right. It's an exercise in trade-offs, but it's also an exercise in setting priorities. Yep. And that's what the speech from the throne does. So the question is how to reach those priorities in the most efficient and sustainable way. Some people are very concerned about moral hazards and disincentive effects. My own feeling, and, and that's an argument for a, a smaller EI program. My view is that we should be really paying more attention to the, the firm side of the equation when it comes to moral hazards. There are many businesses that basically get an implicit subsidy through the EI system. Mm -hmm. And we should pay more attention to the structure of premiums and taxes in general to level the playing field, to make it more efficient and let markets function rather than paring back on the labor supply uh, side pairing back insurance when it's more needed. Now, the other consideration, obviously, is the overall budget. So you and I have talked about the regional entrance requirement in EI, and there's been a lot of discussion 
about making that uniform across the country. Mm-hmm. That's going to let a lot more people into the, the program. And obviously, that's got to be scaled against the extra expense. My view is you could find a reasonable middle ground. You don't have to eliminate the entrance requirement entirely, but you could make it much more broader. Mm-hmm. And the other thing you should do is if you're going to provide people with insurance, then it could be better insurance by raising the maximum insurable earnings. And that will bring more monies into the program right. that can be used. I think, though, that there really isn't a strong case for making more training. In my view, and I think you'll find there's dispute about this, making more investments in training. Mm-hmm. So the government is going to probably go ahead and introduce like individual accounts for training so you can go off and, and finance your own training program. EI does a considerable amount in different training programs, some of them more useful than others. That could be cleaned up and simplified. But if training is important in the future, I'm not sure why it should be run through the EI program. Mm -hmm. If you need training, you should be able to to get it. Mm -hmm. I'm much more inclined to say just make community colleges free because you need at least that level of education to function now in this economy, just as we have primary and secondary education that's free. Mm -hmm. Why should you have to qualify for EI to get access to training programs? And so you could do some rationalization of the program in that regard rather than expanding it. You're right. There are these margins, but I'm too fearful right now that the financial considerations without really making progressive and fair reform in the tax system at the same time are going to lead to a smaller, more targeted EI program than it really should be for the demands that Canadians are going to put on it. Absolutely. Your initial statement around, yes, there are trade-offs, but this is also about priorities, I think for me is is a very clarifying call for the discussions on EI, but also on, on a number of health and social policy debates that we're having right now. So I thought that framing was very helpful. And so in that vein, there is a lot going on right now. And depending on the day, you can find me either very jaded or cautiously optimistic about where we're going as a country. And so as my last question, what's giving you some hope about what could be next for EI? I'm very hopeful about the conversation we've had about basic income and income support. There was a wave in the initial part of the pandemic where you really did get the sense that Canadians were pulling together. Workers were valued. They were called essential. They were called heroes. And I hope we can hold on to that because the social value we put on each other is not necessarily mirrored in the market value that Mm -hmm. governs pay. So I'm looking at the interface of income support and income insurance as being a hopeful area. And for a lot of people, this is wrapped up in the conversation around basic income. And sometimes that term is used, you know, very much as a hope, as a desire for more equality, more inclusion, stronger families, better community. And the challenge for policymakers is to translate that hope 
into practical public policy. There is less, I think, agreement on basic income, the how, than there could be. But for me, I don't think we have to have big, major reforms to reach this goal, to fulfill this hope. The programs we have, the good programs we have on the table should be advanced. And the ones that aren't so good, like vestigial structures, should be ignored and not expanded. So this is why I think EI can play an important role in this basic income discussion. There's a sister program that we've introduced. The liberals have expanded something that the previous conservative government introduced, and it's now called the Canada Workers Benefit. And it's basically a wage top-up for low-income earners. I don't see why you can't expand that program, give it a component that doesn't depend upon work, and then make the work subsidy a a little bit more generous. Mm -hmm. It would focus the energies of public policy on people in precarious situations and capture the, let's say, the self-employed or the gig workers that we're worried about, the unincorporated Mm self-employed who are really workers who are just as a last-ditch effort trying to get some income. Mm -hmm. It gives them the support. And then you could simply translate that earnings into some reasonable amount of hours for EI and encourage these people to stay engaged in the labor market, but know that it's going to lead to some employment insurance. Mm -hmm. Right now, the jobs used to support your income in the Canada Workers Benefit don't necessarily qualify you for any employment insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just rationalizing the conversation that those two programs are having uh, and making them complement each other would would take, I think, a significant step towards what we imagine a basic income to be for a group that's been left out. In effect, we have a basic income for families with children. In effect, we have a basic income for the elderly. It's people living on their own in their working years and other people living in couples in their working years that are falling through the cracks. You have the tools, you have the programs right on the table in front of you. If you harmonized them, made them more generous, you'd, I think, take a big step in speaking to the hopes and the insecurities that Canadians have. Well, on that note, thanks so much for joining us today, Miles. As a reminder for folks listening, Miles Korak is Professor of Economics with the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and Senior Scholar at the James M. and Kathleen D. Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. Thanks so much for listening. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andry. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers. Uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Mahim Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. 
If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps to support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week. 